Mustafa and Ken here. Welcome back to the Alert Medic One podcast. Alert Medic One response. Yeah. So how'd you learn to start? So I've been a nurse for eight years. Okay. Uh, I started forensic nursing four years ago. Okay. What made you get into that? Um, before I became a nurse, I was actually considering a career in either law enforcement or forensics. So I was possibly going to study criminal justice and then my mom talked me out of that was like you should become a nurse uh so i did and then i don't exactly remember how i came across it but um i saw like the class advertised and i was like i think that would be a really cool like intersection of nursing and criminal justice it's such a heavy and depressing topic to get into yeah it seems (laughs) like it i mean a lot of people think that but i don't um I don't see it that way. Uh, I think I'm just like so passionate about it and it's so rewarding to me. Like the way that we help people, it's so different from any other type of nursing. It's really specialized. Um, And I think people really don't know what we actually do, Mm -hmm. like the different things that we can actually do, what we're utilized for. Um, So people think it's really depressing, but I actually find it really rewarding, so. So I guess we should probably kind of back up a little bit and explain what it is you actually do, right? You're a safe nurse. Yes. So can you kind of lay that out for us? Sure. Um, So we use the term safe nurse um, sexual assault forensic exam. Um, My title here in Maryland is FNEA, so forensic nurse examiner, adult and adolescent. Um, They do have FNEP also, which is pediatrics, uh, which I do not have. Um, FNE is exclusive to Maryland, kind of. So if you go to other states, it will probably be um, a safe nurse. Um, but we kind of use that general description. Uh, but we're trying to move away from that, I think, because the connotation is so heavy on the sexual assault that you kind of overlook all the other stuff that we do. Uh, but basically, we provide um, medical care to victims of trauma i would say across the lifespan i mean as adult and adolescent i take care of patients 13 and older but obviously pediatric would see 12 and under Um, we see victims of sexual assault domestic violence interpersonal violence um, elder abuse human trafficking and strangulation Uh, we provide medical care assessment Um, you know we give medication if indicated depending on what happened and we uh, make recommendations to the rest of the healthcare team, either for imaging or things like that. Um, we help connect people with advocacy. Um, yeah, so we do a lot of different things. So what was the, you said you had you saw a class, uh, well, you took a class. Mm-hmm. So what, what class was that? Like how long is it, what kind of? So we go through a, uh, it's about a 40 hour um, didactic training. So. Currently, through COVID, it's all been online. Uh, mine was part online and part in person. Um, you know, you you go to the class, uh, you listen to the lectures. After you do the 40 hours of class, you know, either in person and online, um, there are some clinical pieces that you have to go through. Um, the clinical stuff involves uh, speculum insertion, stuff like that. You have to have so many of those. Um, You have to do some ride along, spend some time with the sex offense detectives, um, talk with some people in the crime lab, that type of stuff. And then you actually um, apply for a separate uh, license through the Board of Nursing. 
um, in Maryland at least, that's yeah. what you do. So it really is a specialty into and of itself. It is, and I believe it's considered advanced practice certification technically. Um, so you do have to go and actually like apply for a separate license and you renew it separately as well. So. Okay, very interesting. And, and where do you work uh, in Maryland? I work at uh, Mercy Medical Center for their forensic nurse examiner program. Okay, cool. And uh, so that's the, is that like the adult, we have like resource centers, so is that like the adult safe resource center for the city? That or is, for, for Baltimore City, yes, that okay. is the adult center. And does each county have a different resource center? Or? Um, like I know it's GBMC for Baltimore County. Um, there's actually a lot more programs popping up, like uh, Anne Arundel County. Actually, I think Anne Arundel Medical Center and Baltimore, Washington both have a safe team now. Um, I'm pretty sure. I think Howard County sees patients for safe as well. Um, so I can't really speak for the other jurisdictions, but I know for Baltimore City Mercy is the center for 13 and older. I know, uh, for example, in Harford County, they have Harford Memorial Hospital. Mm -hmm. But one thing when I was a volunteer in Harford County that they said was if a safe patient was transported to the other hospital in the county, Upper Chesapeake, there was some ability to get a safe nurse to that patient there without having to transfer them to another hospital. Is that the case, generally speaking? I don't know if that's the case, generally speaking. I can I can really only speak for our program, but we do have mobile capabilities. So if, say, the patient is um, like a trauma patient or has to go to shock trauma, um, we do have mobile capability that we can go to any hospital in the city and we can complete an exam on that patient. Um, that's not the case for all programs. I know that for sure. Um, but I think some of them do have that capability. Okay. Well, you got, uh, I was just going to ask, what sorts of other health professionals do you work with in the context of the safe nursing program? So when we see patients at Mercy, like say a person presents to Mercy, um, usually they come through the emergency department. So they'll present to the emergency department for either a uh, sexual assault or um, interpersonal violence event. Um, they will be registered and seen in the emergency department the same way that a normal patient would. Um, the only difference is they really kind of get more of a brief medical screening exam. It's kind of, I don't want to say hands off till the safe nurse sees them, but um, you know, the doctor comes in, just says, hey, I'm kind of just going to do a, a once over, make sure you don't have any injuries that, you know, need to be evaluated. And then they really kind of defer to us after that. So we interact with, um, you know, the providers there, the doctors, the PAs, NPs, anything like that, uh, the nursing staff. Um, we, we interact with EMS, obviously. Sometimes the patient comes by EMS, um, and sometimes the patient comes with the police. So we interact with uh all the members of the care team in the emergency department or whatever unit the patients want. I would imagine too there's a big mental health component to the other professionals you work with. Um, there is. I would say so. I it's I don't want to say that I think sometimes people just don't know how to interact with the patients. You know, they don't really know what to say or how to interact with them. Um, I've seen some of the providers probably not interact with the patient in the best way, you know, when you someone's coming in on probably the worst day of their life and you're, you know, coming to see them, um, you know. So not everybody knows how to interact with the patients in the best way, the most therapeutic way, I guess you could say. Can you I guess, yeah, can you expand on that? Because, I mean, that, this is important to talk about. That. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, you know, the, the biggest thing that I notice is I don't want to say lack of compassion or empathy, um, I'm an ER nurse full-time, obviously, so I see a lot of the same things that the doctors, EMS, nurses, everyone sees. 
Um, but I, I think sometimes we kind of get that jaded approach to things, you know, and we have our, uh, you know, our frequent flyers, which we shouldn't say, but the people that we see on a pretty, pretty frequent basis, um, the drug, the alcohol, the psychiatric stuff that we see. And I think sometimes we become so jaded to some of that, that we are not being as open, compassion, empathetic as we probably should be to some people. Um, really just talking to people on their level, you know, like basic respect and compassion and, um, you know, I'm here, I'm here to help you. I'm here to believe you. I would say that is the biggest thing that I think I see people struggle with is they don't believe what the patient is saying. And if they don't believe what the patient is saying, then I think it's harder for them to treat them with compassion and empathy. Yeah. I mean, it's really not our job as EMTs or paramedics to decide whether or not what the patient is saying is true. Correct. We should just assume that it is and Correct. treat them as such. Correct. And the biggest comparison that I have for pre-hospital and even in hospital, if the patient says they have chest pain, what do you do for the patient? Right. You do an EKG. Exactly. You don't say alleged chest pain, you know, yeah. allegedly <laughs> the patient has chest pain, that type of thing. Um, yeah. And I agree. It's not our place to believe that. It's not even my place to decide if what they're saying is true or not, right? My job mm-hmm. is to treat the patient, listen to what they say, document what they say, their injuries, and provide the care that they need. Um, you know, I always say it's kind of law enforcement's place, if law enforcement is involved, to determine if what they're saying occurred. Um, and I really just try to keep that in the back of my mind to just believe the patient. That brings up a really good point. It's if law enforcement is involved, because at least in the state of Maryland, that's not necessarily always going to be the case. Correct. Um, It is not mandatory reporting um, for sexual assault of an appropriate age, of course, you know, when you have children and, Mm -hmm. and minors and stuff like that, that's a little bit different or vulnerable people. Um, you know, but it's always a good idea to ask your patient if they want to notify law enforcement um, of the assault if they're not already involved. I know sometimes that you guys get on scene and police are already there or police have even called you to transport the patient. Um, but it's a good idea to ask if they would like the, the police involved or not, because we can actually do our exams without police involvement. Okay. That's, that's good to know. Yes. It's, it's important to know. Even our um, domestic violence or interpersonal violence exams, we can do that without um, like police involved either. Which, a little off topic, but I would really like to uh, talk about what is mandatory reporting at some point. Oh, uh, in yeah. Episode. yeah. I yeah, think yeah. that's a, a yeah. very important topic Yeah, um, because it's not well understood. And in, in this context, uh, as you said, this is probably the worst day of somebody's life, so we don't want to make that worse by entering into a situation that they don't want to be in even if we think it's in their best interest it's it's not our decision correct um you know what we have found um the blind reporting that we can do the evidence is held for up to 20 years i believe they did a study and anyone who you know in that study who did the blind reporting i think the longest someone took to go back and report was like maybe a year or a year and a day Um, But we do hold the evidence for 20 years. Um, Sometimes you can't just, you can't make that decision in the moment. You know what I mean? Like, I think, you know, it's important to explain to them, look, look, you can go get checked out. You can get the evidence collection and the report done. And then you can make that decision a little bit later on when things have kind of settled down. You've had time to think about it and process it. Um, And I think it's nice for you guys to be aware of that, too, that you can offer people. Because I think sometimes people are under the impression they can only get that done if the police are involved. 
Yeah, is that a common practice around the country to hold that evidence for that long? That seems like a really it, – it's really cool, but it's a really long time. It's a really time. long time. So it who is. holds it? Um, it's stored – it used to be stored at the crime lab, but it's stored at, like, an off-site area now. Um, but we actually have a separate evidence locker. Like, mm-hmm. we have our evidence locker for reported cases, and then we have a separate locker at Mercy okay. um, for the blind reporting. So it's kept separately. So, okay, this is completely tangential, but uh, you'll, you randomly you'll see in the news that cops, like, throw away – not cops, but departments will throw away rape kits, mm-hmm. right? So, like, what's that all about? I don't know what that's all about. Um, <laughs> or like, you know, yeah, like, or they'll be untested. Right. I mean, There's I, a backlog. I, sure. So yeah. I actually went to a conference um, in New Orleans like a month ago or so, and their crime lab actually did a presentation, which I thought was like a little way too like scientific and it wasn't geared towards nursing, if that makes sure. sense. But anyway, I listened. But one thing that they said that was really interesting was when COVID and everything first started happening, um, they were not able to test a lot of their kits because the reagent used was what they were using for COVID testing. So they ended up with a huge backlog of untested sexual assault kits because the reagent stuff was on shortage because of COVID. So there's all kinds of things that can really affect like stuff like that, that you wouldn't even think about um, COVID being one of them. Um, but I know for sure that our kits, our blind reporting kits are held for 20 years. That's on a consent form that we have the patient sign. Um, there's actually three options that people have. Option one is the reporting to police, having the forensic exam done. Option two is blind reporting. So having the forensic exam done without law enforcement involvement. And then the third option is just medical treatment in the emergency department. So that is actually the consent form that we have the patient sign. So informed consent, whichever one they decide. Um, if they want a medical exam, they'll just see the doctor in the ER and they won't see us. Is there an equivalent medical, I guess, certification for other professions, like how there's safe nursing? Is there? I don't think so. Not that I'm aware of. Um, I know like the pediatric stuff, I'm not sure exactly how that works. I know like university, I think they take your peds cases like under 13 to university, but I know they're like residents there do them. It's not a forensic nurse. Oh, really? Oh. I'm pretty sure. I mean, well, you I might know. know a little bit yeah, better I than know. I would, but um, it's, yeah, it's one of the doctors that does it. It's not a forensic nurse. Dr. Lawner would know when we interview I was thinking that, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's not a forensic nurse there that does that's it. That's very interesting. I wonder if that's the case for all pediatric safe centers or if that is. It's GBMC um, nurses do it. Do I know they? that, yeah, because um, someone that I worked with at my previous job, she was a safe nurse at um, GBMC and she was A&P, so she did see pediatric patients there. I'd be interested in your thoughts. You know, obviously this is not a new problem. This is a, it's a problem as old as humanity, mm-hmm. but it's only been in the past few years that we've really seen the propagation of safe centers and safe mm-hmm. nursing and what has changed in the culture of healthcare that this is actually becoming acknowledged and you know problem we're dealing with head on as opposed to something that we're kind of sweeping under the rug? I think we're talking about it more. Um, I don't even know if I want to say it's happening more than it used to be, or if we're just talking about it more. Um, I would say me personally and what I've seen, at least with like strangulation and stuff like that, I think we're just talking about it more. Um, you know, we have the Academy of Forensic Nursing. Um, there's another, you know, uh, Academy for Forensic Nursing. Like we're getting more, um, you know, groups and stuff together that are talking about it, educating about it. Um, 
and I think really we're just kind of talking about it more. Okay. Um, we're seeing it more because we're aware of it now. Like, I don't know how long you've been in EMS, but I mean, think back to like, when did you really start hearing about human trafficking and stuff like that? Like, we know right. that's been going on for a really long time, but when did you really start getting educated on it? Like within, within the, the fire department, exactly. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I think it's kind of following that trend of like, it's always been a thing, but you know, now we know about it more and we're kind of more aware of it. So we might be paying attention to it more okay. or being like, oh, that's, that could be that. You know what I mean? And I, I just want to um, make a quick pause for a terminology thing. You've brought up sure. strangulation a few times. Mm -hmm. And something I did not know until I took a human trafficking course mm -hmm. is the difference between the term strangulation and choking. So can you yes. highlight that? I'm so us, excited. Please? I'm so glad you said that. So. <laughs> Um, strangulation is external and choking is internal, right? So if you're choking on something, that's an internal process, whereas strangulation is external. So it's pressure applied to the neck with either hands or a ligature or an object. Um, there's three types of strangulation, but um, manual is what you're going to see the most, which is hands. There's ligature, and then there is like hanging as in like a suicide attempt What's or like completed. A um, any object like this cord, uh, yes, wrap around the neck. This is definitely going to be one of our best performing episodes, I can already tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. And I, I do want to get into human trafficking, but I didn't know if you, there's any more stuff with like the, the sexual assault stuff that you want to go down that road at all? Uh, uh, I, mean, your notes? I mean, we can just take it wherever we want. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. So human trafficking. I mean, again, like you said, this is not a new problem, but it's it's like a newly acknowledged problem, right? Yes. So it's something we're talking about now, yes. but it's not something that hasn't been happening for all of human existence, right? Correct. So this is, this is obviously a big deal, but it's not a new thing. It's yes. just something we're, we're starting to deal with a little bit better, um, at least in the medical field. So... I mean, just tell us a little bit about human trafficking in, in okay. general. Like, what is it? So human trafficking, um, basically anyone who is being um, forced, coerced, um, you know, threatened into um, providing, I don't want to say a service, but I guess a service technically. Um, I guess I, I can just give an example. I mean, if someone is like, um, okay, if you want to stay here in this house with us, um, you have to pay us this amount of money. Or if you are not able to pay that amount of money, then you're going to have sex with this person in order for you to stay here or in order for you to be able to have food, things like that. I think that's kind of like what we're going to see a lot of in our area where, you know, we're all working. Um, I think the biggest thing is that some of these people don't even know that they're being trafficked. So you're like, God, how am I going to know if someone's being trafficked mm -hmm. if they don't even know? You know, don't be like, is someone trafficking you? Like, that's not <laughs> what you really want to say to the patient. You know what I mean? Is is anyone forcing you to do anything that you don't want to do? That's mm -hmm. usually kind of how I start the conversation because I've had a patient come in. I actually got called for a case and they were like, oh, it's like an interpersonal violence. Someone, this woman is like abusing this other woman. You know, she lives in her house or whatever. And it turned out to be trafficking after we asked a couple more questions, you know. Um, but even if you're not sure of what's going on, you can always get the forensic nurse involved and then we can kind of do that that deeper dive into like what's really going on. Um, you know, but I usually say, is anyone making you do anything that you don't feel comfortable doing on your own? 
there's a lot of that in in the drug culture there too, right? Like Correct. when we see people who are addicted to different mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. Um, they may be coerced into doing things. I mean, maybe not even. I mean, often prostitution, right? Yes. Where, you know, you have to yes. go do this and then I'll give you your drugs. Like, right. that's a huge problem. So the situation that I have in my mind is, you know, a particular case. And it, it really went from, okay, um, if you want to stay here, you have to pay money to stay here. And then it was like, oh, well, if you don't want to do that, like, um, I can give you... I can give you drugs instead. Like, if you want to stay here, you can, you know... Ad- it kind of goes a bunch of different ways. Like, it'll be, you know, okay, well, I'm going to stay here. Um, I'll pay for part of your drugs, things like that. And then next thing you know, it's like, okay, do these dates. We're going to set you up on these dates. That's how you're going to That's how you're gonna pay us to stay here. Um, and then it was like, okay, it turned into this person is taking all of the money now. I don't get any of the money, and I'm being forced into the dates. So it kind of... I don't want to say it's insidious, but I think it's kind of insidious the That's way that it happens. That's what I was going to use, actually. Yeah. I, was I mean, I was, it's I was very insidious. Yeah, so, like, you kind of start out like you are okay with it, and then before you know it, like, you're completely being taken advantage of. It's, like, almost a desensitization to the situation right. where it starts out, okay, yeah, I got to pay money to live in a house. Yes. No big deal. Yes. Well, then A moves to B, and B moves to C, and right. C moves to D, to E, yes. and it just it becomes worse and worse, but... Yes. It's like the, uh, what do they say, the frog in the pot. You know, yeah. you don't realize how bad things are getting yes. because it's not it's not like snap your fingers yes. and this is going on. Right. And in some cases it is. Yeah. Um, I took a very good human trafficking course from, he was, you, you'd know him if I could think of his name, I'm sure. He was a, uh, involved in the Baltimore City Police Department and this governor's task force on human Tom trafficking. Stack. That's him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, just some of the examples he had and yeah. some of the things he said were just out of this world. Yeah. Like, you just couldn't believe it. Yeah. I mean, they're being forced to have sex with like 20, 30 people a day. Yeah. Some of them. So let me ask you this. Even if I'm, even if there's not like a actual assault, but we're transporting someone, can mm-hmm. we get safe nursing involved if we think there's human trafficking? Absolutely. Okay, so there doesn't have to be like a sexual assault for you. you No, there doesn't. So um, the human trafficking cases, so it's it's Blue Dot in Baltimore City. That's what they're called. Um, Blue Dot is the kind of code word if EMS is transporting someone. I think they're being told to use blue dot mm-hmm. to identify human trafficking patients. I did not know that. Okay. Oh, you didn't know now that? You know. Do, yeah. Is that a city thing? It's, I think it's just it's, a, a mercy yeah. thing. Yeah. It's mostly in the city. I think they're I mean, everyone trying... in Maryland should know that because it's not only city people that go to Correct. It's, mercy. I, it's, it's trying to be made, I think, like a statewide thing. Um, the human trafficking, like, subcommittee that's meeting with, like, Colleen and, and Debbie is my boss. Um, they're really trying to bring that information to more people, I think. Um, but if you ever hear blue dot, that's human trafficking. Yeah. I that's mean, a, we should talk offline about that. Yes, I mean, absolutely. Um, the I'm exams. I'm surprised you didn't know about that. I, no, that's the first time I ever heard about it. Especially considering your professional don't, don't position. Say that. <laughs> I know that's why I said let's talk offline. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. that's okay. Yeah. Um, so the human trafficking exams are really unique. They're a little bit different than our sexual assault exams um, because. In the human trafficking situation, if it's sex trafficking at least, but it doesn't have to be, some of that is um, consensual, right? Sex work, some of it is consensual. Some people are like, no, I'm, 
I do sex work, that's how I make my money, and they're okay with that, and that's fine. So it doesn't have to be um, a forced sexual assault, if that makes sense. Some of the other things that we offer are human trafficking patients. We offer them, like I said, we hook people up with advocacy Mm -hmm. who can help them with housing, resources. Um, The other big thing for those patients is um, peer recovery. I'm sure we're fairly familiar with the peer recovery coaches that a lot of the ERs have. Um, A lot of these people want detox or want some type of placement for that. So we hook them up with peer recovery for that. Um, We give them clothing. We give them um, like hygiene bags, stuff like that. Uh, We give them STI prophylaxis if they would like it, even if they've not been sexually assaulted. Um, They can get a medical exam with the doctor, you know, if there are injuries that they have. Um, And then our strangulation exams end up being a big part of our um, human trafficking exams because a lot of times these people are um, being strangled frequently so we can look for injury um, make recommendations to the medical team if they need like CTs and imaging and stuff like that do you guys offer like mental health resources for these people too that's a little bit harder I would say that kind of falls under the advocacy piece of it Um, I think we would like to be able to offer them more resources in that sense but I mean we know how hard it is even just for the regular ER patients to get them the resources that right it's like outpatient you know if you're not getting you know placed somewhere for psych it's a little bit difficult i just you know my mind just goes to with uh you know particularly sexual assault victims like ptsd and stuff mm-hmm. like that is a huge issue absolutely so i was just wondering if that's absolutely. something that's offered um not directly in that kind of acute setting i would say but i think once we get them to a lot of the places that we get them for the housing resources um i'm wondering if that's something that takes place a little bit more there and you can't offer everything in the ed you You know that's just the reality of the healthcare system it's just it's unfortunate but what can you do i think in that situation really the safety is the big piece um When we have these patients come in, if they're known human trafficking, we actually um, ask them if they have any electronic devices on them. If they do, uh, we get security involved. We actually wrap their phones and stuff in foil um, in case they're being tracked. A lot of them will have tracking devices on them. Um, Their pimps will be tracking their phones, all types of stuff. Um, So we turn all that off. We get security involved. Security actually ends up with like a one-to-one detail for these people if they are like, if they're like, yeah, like my person's looking for me probably. Um, So we kind of have like a whole response that kind of takes place. That brings up uh, another point that something I've noticed probably, I want to say, I'm not sure if I noticed it when I first started in EMS, but I've definitely noticed at least over the past five years, probably over the past 10, is the question when you come into the ED, no matter what you come in for, do you feel safe at home? Is anybody trying to hurt you? Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that all ties into this conversation. It does. Yeah. It does. Um, All emergency departments should be screening people for safety. Um, I can't speak to if all of them do. you know, but I know we have our like generic questions, um, but you really should be asking the question, you know, do you feel safe at home? Is anyone forcing you to do anything you don't want to do? Um, I usually screen people, hey, do you want to hurt yourself or anybody else? I mean, like, mm-hmm. it's things sometimes if you don't ask people, I mean, no one wants to be that person in the ER, like, hey, the person's also suicidal. But like, right. you know, at the end of the day, we should be doing what's right for the patient. Let me ask you this. Is that the best way to be asking, though? Do you feel safe at home? Because anecdotally, I'm just saying, it's 3 in the morning. 
you know, and the person just is rifling through questions. They're like, do you feel safe at home? Like, I mean, <clears throat> I don't know. Um, you will get some of the answers like, no, I don't feel safe at home. And I was like, oh, why don't you feel well? You know, I live in the city and it's dangerous and it's, <laughs> you know, uh, you'll get stuff like that. Um, so I think it's unique to the situation. It, it, I just feel like you might need to pry a little bit more. Correct. And, and, and you're asking for a reason probably because you've probably felt something that has made you feel like you need to ask that question to that person. Like it's not you standardized? Because like, I thought it was like standardized. I could have sworn like every single patient. I guess I meant more for like EMS. Like if you're asking the person that, then you might have a concern. Uh, but for the ER, yeah, it's, it's pretty standardized if they do have those type of questions. Mm-hmm. It's usually um, something like that. Do you feel safe at home? Um, is anyone physically or sexually abusing you? It's just kind of stuff along those okay. lines. It depends on where you work, but yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. It's a lot. I mean, it's a, like I said, it's a heavy topic. It's a lot to unpack. <laughs> it is. So it is. going to, I mean, kind of going back to sexual assault, like one, one of the questions I feel like I get from students is how long do you guys have to t- do, actually do an exam? So we've actually increased the time to 14 days out for um, vaginal or anal assault. So it used to be about seven. Um, They have increased it to two weeks. There were some studies that found that they could still find some um, like physical evidence, like on swabs, DNA, stuff like that. So we have extended how long we do the exams. Um, So I'd say about 14 days. Um, We can offer certain prophylactic medications, but for a much shorter time. Um, we can offer HIV PET prophylaxis 72 hours out. Um, the rest of the medications that we offer, which would be antibiotics and uh, Plan B pill, is about 120 hours, which is about five days. So let's keep going down that route. So sure. let's say that EMS encounters a patient who's been sexually assaulted. What should EMS do in terms of treatment or talking to the patient, you know, and Stuff like, you know, ask, should they say the patient wants to take a shower, change their clothes, Mm -hmm. or they want to put their clothes in a certain kind of bag, that kind of stuff. So if you get on scene for one of these patients, um, obviously I would, I would advise the patient, um, look, if you want to get taken for a forensic exam for evidence collection, you know, it would probably be best if you don't take a shower right now, um, But I would say at the end of the day, if that's what the patient wants to do, if the patient still wants to come for a forensic exam, I wouldn't argue with the patient about it. You know what I mean? Like at the end of the day, if you can get them there to get checked out and get the exam, that's the most important thing. Um, Obviously, it would be nice for evidence collection if they didn't take a shower or if they didn't change their clothes or things like that. Um, You know, but we do have to compromise with people sometimes. Um, So... I think it's fair if that's what they want to do. Of course, don't argue with them about it. Um, We do collect the first toilet paper. Like if someone urinates or goes to the bathroom, um, that's part of what we can collect as our kit. So if, say, you're there and the person's like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom, you know, everyone's like, no, 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 don't pee. Don't, you know, can let the person pee. Obviously, we don't want the person to be like uncomfortable while they're sitting there waiting. Um, If they can collect the toilet paper and put that in a little bag, or if you have a little bag, you can put it in and bring it with the patient. I mean, that's something good to do, even if you can collect the urine sample. Like, say you got to the hospital and you're waiting to be offloaded and the person has to pee before the forensic nurse comes. Like, hey, can we get a urine sample? Hold on to that. We can take that when we get there. Okay. And can we talk about bags for a second? Sure. Because 
When I was in EMT school and even paramedic school, something I was always told was you never put any kind of evidence in a plastic bag because it's going to destroy all the evidence. Is that true? So we do prefer um, paper bags. It's okay. the same thing, kind of like the trauma patients at the hospital when the police come and collect stuff. So, But most of you probably don't have a paper bag sitting around. I'm just being realistic. Um, you know, so if we can get that toilet paper, you know, if you want to throw it in a specimen bag for a couple minutes before we get there, we're going to dry everything anyway. Um, I'd rather have that evidence than no evidence. You know what I mean? Like we're not packaging it in a plastic bag. You're just kind of grabbing it and holding on to it. And then I'm going to put it in the dryer box and then I will package it appropriately. Okay. Do you guys get subpoenaed? Like, so, yes. Okay. So like you guys, have, so you probably have a closer relationship with like a state's attorney. Right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. We okay. do receive subpoenas. Um, I have not gone to court in four years. I have prepped three times for court and have not been called. Person okay. took a plea and, um, but we do testify in court. We also do suspect exams, which people mm-hmm. don't know we do. So if there is a suspect that has perpetrated a sexual assault, we also do suspect exams. Oh, wow. And collect evidence from the suspects. That's right, involuntary? Court-ordered. Yeah. So, yes. Wow. <laughs> I'm sure that's not a pleasant experience for you. <laughs> um, I've only done three in the last four years. Um, everyone has been cooperative. But, yes, it is wow. court-ordered, so it's not optional. Ooh. But that involves um, swab collection, hair collection, photographs. Wow. Mm. Yes. This is already way bigger of a world than I ever thought. Yeah. Yes. We do a lot of cool things. <laughs> sure. Uh, no. <laughs> no, it is. It is cool. So talk to me about, um, so we talked a little bit about strangulation before. What are some concerns, like say for, or what's something that I would be seeing as a paramedic, and I may not really realize it's strangulation, but it is. Uh, yeah. So I would say any type of, Domestic violence, especially domestic violence, and when I say domestic violence, I mean between, like, intimate partners or people who know each other. When I say interpersonal violence, it's violence between people that might not necessarily know each other. Um, But if you are called on scene for any type of physical assault that is domestic-related, I would encourage you to ask about strangulation. So if you encounter any person who has said that their partner has struck them, hit them, kicked them, Ask them if that person put their hands or anything around their neck. Now, what are some of the risks, both short-term and long-term, of strangulation? So short-term, immediate, most life-threatening, I would say, would probably be carotid dissection. Um, That's a big one. Um, That's what your, you know, your patient who is severely strangled, you're probably going to be worried about maybe transporting to a trauma center, depending on, you know, your protocols and your assessment of the patient. Um, Long term, a lot of these people are going to have kind of like traumatic brain injury symptoms. So headaches, memory loss, um, things like that down the road, especially people who are strangled frequently. Um, I remember talking to someone who had been strangled multiple times over the course of her time with this partner. And it wasn't really until her and I had a conversation about it. And she's like, I, I can't remember things. Like, I can't remember things. Like, I get these headaches all the time. And I'm like, you're, you're probably having, like, TBI symptoms. Like, that's something that's going to happen when this happens to you over and over and over again. The repeated lack of oxygen to your brain. Like, the cells just can't regenerate like that. You know what I mean? So that's stuff that you're going to start to notice. And it was like a big 
like aha moment for her she was like oh she didn't realize that that was what was happening you know what i mean you know it just really makes me think how people get trapped in these situations Mm -hmm. especially with domestic violence you know it's it, it's so obvious from the outside looking in how terrible that right. situation Just is for leave, somebody. Just leave, right? Like, yeah. But and it's so much more than that, you know? And especially when you bring children and drug or alcohol issues or even now, like, medical problems, right? Like, you know, you have this stuff going on. You don't feel good. And, you know, you have headaches and you're dizzy. And, you know, it's it's a whole other layer of things yeah. to the situation. So who do, who do we call, right? So like, say I maybe for what I don't know, but like maybe I'm not able to transport to a safe hospital, right? Like, mm-hmm. who, or maybe I suspect some something, but it wasn't like something where I could initiate transport or whatever the case may sure. be. Like, who do we call? So, I would always say transport to the most appropriate facility, right? So if your person is a higher level of care and needs to go to a trauma center, please always transport to the correct level of care. That's number one. Like don't ever delay medical treatment for any type of sexual assault, evidence, that type of a thing. So always go to the correct level of care. Um, depending on where you are, you know, if you, like I said, if you're in Baltimore City and you are concerned about something sexual assault, domestic related, anything you think needs a forensic nurse, um, you can mention to the hospital, hey, like, I think this person should see the forensic nurse. Can you guys reach out to um, Mercy Medical Center and give them a call? And Mercy will get in touch with the forensic nurse on call, and then they can call the hospital and talk to them. Um, People can be discharged from whatever hospital and go to Mercy. That's that's generally the standard practice. So say somebody walks into St. Agnes for a sexual assault, Um, The doctor's going to be like, okay, we're just doing a medical screening exam. We're going to discharge you. If you would like that exam done, you do need to go to Mercy Medical Center. So people can take a lift, take themselves there. It doesn't have to be a transfer or anything like that. Do you see a lot of people actually doing that? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. People will just go to the nearest hospital like, hey, I was sexually assaulted. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, well, we can offer you X, Y, and Z. But, like, if you really want everything, it's probably best for you to go to. As in, like, they follow through, actually, and go to Frank? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Or not Frank. Uh, mm-hmm. Mercy. Okay. Yeah, I would say so. Okay. Um, and say they present to that hospital and they want to report that assault to the police. The police can transport them to Mercy for the exam. Okay. Um, that will happen a lot, too. Like, if they walk into another hospital, they report the assault there. The police will transport them to Mercy. Yeah. Oh, I thought you had something to say. No. So, um, uh, what was I going to say? So, in terms of uh, like hotlines, like mm-hmm. phone numbers, mm-hmm. what, what what exists? So, the numbers that we give for um, any type of like domestic violence situation is usually like um, like House of Ruth has like a hotline and a number. That's one of our discharge instructions. Um, there is a human trafficking hotline. Um, and as far as sexual assault, I'm not sure if there's, like, an actual hotline for that. I'm sure there is somewhere, but it's probably bad that I don't know that off the top of my head. Um, but I just know kind of the stuff we list on our discharge instructions. Um, Mercy also has an app for your phone um, that you can download, and it actually has all of our information. And it also has information for a lot of the colleges in the city. Um, there information for their like offices on campus like if there's an on-campus sexual assault all that information is on there um there's also like military reporting like we have a separate kit for military reported sexual assaults um we get those as well um so yeah 
there's all types of information. Um, you know, it really, it talks about on our app, you know, like the timeline for things, like when you can come in to get seen for an exam, how you go about getting seen for an exam. So it's a nice little resource to have if you do work in the city. That way, if you ever have any questions, you can be like, hey, you can download this app. That way the person themselves can kind of know what to do. I, I didn't know about Blue Dot or the, uh, or the app. So, I didn't know about the app. So if you could spend like, you know, 10 seconds say, or whatever, saying like the top three things that you'd want UMass to know about safe nursing or this patient population, what would mm-hmm. you tell them? Like top three bullet points, most important. Um, I would say I want them to know about strangulation. I think it's a really big deal. Um, 50% of strangulation has no visible injury. So you really need to ask your patient if it happened. Um, the person is not always going to look like a strangled person, if you will. Um, sexual assault, if they say it happened, believe them. Bring them to the hospital. Let us do the rest of it. Um, and I would also tell EMS to trust your gut. Um, I've been really happy with a lot of the patients that EMS has been bringing in. I've been hearing a lot something didn't seem right. Something seemed out of place. Um, and I really appreciate EMS saying that and taking that initiative. Like they don't quite know what's wrong, but they're like, Hey, this girl looked like she didn't belong in this part of town. She wasn't dressed appropriately. And we think something might've happened to her. And they brought the patient in, they called it blue dot. Doesn't matter if it was blue dot or not. You got the patient to the hospital to talk to the right person. And I think that's like a really big deal and the most important thing. So it's kind of like, if you see something, say something type deal. Like if you think something like, Trust your gut. I mean, this, these are guys on the engine, too. This isn't even, like, the, the paramedic. Like, you know, we know the situation in Baltimore City right now, how hard it is sometimes to get, like, a medic and stuff like that. Like, they're busy, you know? Mm-hmm. But these are, like, you know, those guys on the engine, like, yeah, this doesn't look right. Like, she's, like, in the back of an alley, like, passed out. Like, and I really think that's a really good thing. So if you feel like something's not right or you feel like it's any type of situation like that, Trust your gut, transport them if they'll allow you to, and be like, I think they need to talk with the forensic nurse. Do you see the, so you, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, just advocate for your patient, believe that. Is that a, do you see that as a, to me, that just seems like unreasonable. Like, like you said, like Ken said, like, that's not our job. But like, do, do you see that pretty often? Is that, I mean, is that more, is that a rarer thing? Like, or. I don't see it. I. You know, it might even be more of an issue with some of the ERs than the EMS providers. Um, You know, there are people who have mental health issues that kind of perseverate on that sexual assault thing. Like, but I think in their mind, they believe that it actually happened. Like, there are situations where I think they are reverting back to that. So we might be like, oh, this, like, didn't happen right now. You know, they're like... Someone from outer space is calling me and like 40 people a day are raping me. Like, obviously there's things like that where it's like, okay, there's mental illness that has a component. Um, I don't want to say I see it all that frequently with EMS, but you know, you just have your, you have your bias, right? Like we all have implicit bias to certain things sometimes. And I think it's just important to be aware if that's something that you're kind of seeing in yourself. Like we all have it, but you just have to be aware of it. Like I'm thinking this way about a certain type of patient or sure. I'm maybe not being as open as I should be to this type of a patient. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. Um, a lot of the human trafficking stuff sounds crazy, right? Like this person drugged me, this person, like it sounds crazy. 
and I'm not going to say that you'd be wrong for being like, that sounds crazy. Oh, that kind of crazy. Yeah. Okay. Like yeah. that sound, but like, yeah. I don't believe it. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, like you're skeptical. Like she's making okay. this sh- yeah. up. You yeah. know what I mean? Like that type of a thing. Like it's okay to think that, but just know that it really is happening. Right. And just be like, this sounds crazy, but like, whatever, that's what she said. We're going to do what we're supposed to do. Um, it's okay to like have a doubt, I guess is what mm-hmm. I'm saying. Right. But that's, just yeah. do the right thing. Sure. That's what I would say. Let me ask you this, and Ken, uh, I'd like to get your opinion on this too. So, just thinking back on you know some uh, calls, um, what do you do when the person that may or may not have done the assault or the abuse or whatever is there and they're not violent, but they're obviously coercing or attempting to coerce the patient? And I mean, I guess I kind of know the answer, but I don't want to get your thoughts on it. That's so difficult. That's a, a very difficult situation. Because I have a call within the past year that I ran where, like, I'm thinking of this, yeah. And it becomes even more difficult when the uh, patient is a child, you know, um, mm. and you have to try to separate a parent. But the, the the only thing you can really do is try to separate the parties one way or another, distract someone and get somebody out of there, you mm. know. I, I really don't have a better answer for that than that. You know, you need to find a way to get – the potential perpetrator in one place and the patient in another place. And I don't know. I'd be interested so I don't to... know how helpful it would be for you guys, but like COVID was like a really big help with that because we could be like, there's no visitors allowed. Nobody else can come into the back. Like no one can ride in the ambulance with them, like stuff like that. Um, we were kind of able to like play on that sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um like the no visitor thing was like probably the best thing about COVID at the hospital. Yeah, we, we I know you guys probably like too. enjoyed that too, you know. Yep. Um, so I would definitely say that um, for patients within the hospital, we're able to be like, hey, like they have to go to x ray, like you can't go to x ray with them, um, imaging, places like that. Um, and then even if someone goes to the bathroom, like if someone's in the bathroom alone, like we have things within the bathroom, like some of the places were like, giving people a urine cup and like if something's being done to you like put a little sticker on the bottom of the urine cup like there was a little dot sticker that people were like using that to be like i'm being trafficked or i'm being abused Mm. so that was kind of a cool thing that people were doing i know i had one case a few years ago that involved a child where you know obviously it was a young uh, like a three-year-old girl and um obviously we couldn't separate both the parents from the child, mm-hmm. you know, that's just not a possibility. Uh, so what we did was just discreetly had my partner call for the police from mm-hmm. the front of the ambulance on the way to the hospital and pulled the nurse aside when we got to the hospital and say, hey, this is what we saw. This is what we think's going on. Mm-hmm. Somebody needs to look into this. And yeah. the police are on their way. And I don't know whatever became of that case. You know, yeah. I hope it wasn't what I know it was. But right. um Yeah. And that brings up, like, the um, communication piece that's really important. Um, I would really like to see the nursing staff and EMS communicating a lot more. I try to tell people, like, when I'm doing any type of education with emergency department staff, like nurses or doctors, the importance of handoff from EMS. I think it's really important, especially in these situations, because you might see something or know something that the patient's not going to tell me or that the patient's going to forget to tell me. Um, one of the things I talked about, like when you get to the patient, especially if there's a strangulation, I asked them if they changed their clothes. Um, the person could have urinated or defecated on themselves, which can kind of be telling of how long they were strangled for. 
um, which is important information to know. So like if you know that the person changed their clothes or you can ask them like, were you wearing other clothes when this happened? They might be like, oh yeah, like well, I peed on myself. Like they're embarrassed to say that. Um, so I think that the information that EMS can get and provide is really important. And I would encourage you to share that with, with the emergency department staff or wherever you're transporting your patient to. So I don't want to forget about elder abuse. Yes. Because that was when we were planning this episode, that was the one thing that I had no idea you guys also did. Yes. Because that also brings up uh, uh, the potential just like any other healthcare place for skilled nursing facilities to yes. have, uh, you know, potential for elder abuse. So can you talk to me about your scope and experience with that? Sure. Um, so we just started doing elder abuse probably I'd say in the last two years, really taking off over the last year or so. Um, so what's happening is a hospital will get a patient. Um, the patient will either come in from home or from a nursing facility. More likely than not, EMS brought the patient in, I've noticed. Um, the hospital will make a referral to APS, um, Adult Protective Services, and then APS is reaching out to our program and saying that they have this referral at a hospital. So say the person is at union in the ICU. And this is the report that we received the concern. Can you go do um, a forensic exam on the patient? Um, so we go, we assess the patient physically, look for any um, injuries, any bruises, things like that. Take photographs of the injuries. If the person is able to speak to us, we do a report. Um, so basically ask them questions about the abuse, if there is abuse, things like that. Um, I've done a couple on like intubated patients, so obviously they can't talk or confuse patients. Um, but really, we just take that information back as well as a history and physical, any pertinent lab values, kind of looking at nutritional status, stuff like that. Um, and then we provide our report to APS, which is helping them to do their investigations for these cases. Now, when you say you deal with elder abuse, is that mostly like bodily harm or do you delve into the financial emotional kind if of? they can talk we definitely ask about those things well i was um, also going to ask about neglect like where's the line i would say a lot of what we see is probably neglect okay um there is some straight up abuse um but there's definitely neglect as well which you know our report can kind of help aps make their determination and of. That, i think they make that determination of if it's yeah. like abuse or neglect so and but that's enough so is neglect enough of a thing for me to transport to a safe hospital? Yeah. I mean, yeah. If you think if, if you the think patient it's... otherwise can be transported safely, yeah. 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 I mean, I would say so. Yeah. But like I said, we can go to any hospital. Like most of our, all of our, I will say, majority of our cases that we're doing the, the elder abuse exams on are at other hospitals. Okay. Like, I wouldn't say that people are transporting people to Mercy for that, um, you know, but we do have um, my one coworker. She works like seven to three during the day and she does a lot of the elder abuse cases, but they're all at other hospitals for the most part. Okay. So, um, so I say I transport to whatever hospital in the city. Um, I should t be telling the nurse there and I should be, should I, is there a pathway for me to call like the safe program directly or no? You know, I haven't had EMS make a referral. Um, that's a good question. I mean, we always say anybody can call for their patient, you know, like nursing staff usually calls from other hospitals, like, hey, this patient said they were sexually assaulted. Um, sometimes it's doctors, but like, I don't, 
I wouldn't say EMS can't call. Because I mean, I mean I can, let's be real. In today's healthcare system, everyone is super taxed. Everyone is super right. tired, whatever. And if, it, we, right. if there's a force multiplier that is not being tapped into, I feel like that's an obvious answer. Right. So some of the stuff we're getting has already been referred through APS. And then some of it, I think, is like the hospital staff calling. Um, and then we kind of have an algorithm of like who we have to report to. Um, like it's a different place that you report to if they're from a facility. Like you have to, re- it's like the healthcare quality, Office of Healthcare Quality, that type of stuff. If they're from a facility and you expect that. Um, we really only call police if like death is imminent. Like someone is like so badly neglected or abused that they're like going to imminently die. Um, so there's like different ways that we report that stuff. Um, but that's a really good question about EMS calling and making a referral. I mean... It's interesting because EMS are mandatory reporters for abuse and neglect, and I'm sure every department has a different uh, uh, requirement for how that's handled. But I know for the department I work for, in our manual of procedure, we have the phone numbers for CPS and APS, mm-hmm. and we're required to call them in addition to the police whenever we've run into that kind of stuff. That doesn't help link to mercy um, right. or to a safe nurse. Yeah. Uh, but it does kind of get that ball rolling uh, in that case. And I know that's not the case everywhere where it's as uh, explicit as that as, you know, you still have to report it, but uh, maybe not all those resources are provided. Uh, certainly when I was a volunteer, I didn't have that information available to me. I was just a, you know, hey, start me a law enforcement officer kind of thing and mm-hmm. let them deal with it. Yeah. Do you ever see any male victims? Yes. Sexual and physical abuse. Because, I mean, you always hear that they're, like, super underreported. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I would say another um, community that's going to be underreporting is the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think historically they do not seek care in general for a lot of things because of um, a lot of the bias and things that they will experience. Um you know, emergency departments and probably even EMS too really are not, I would say, trained adequately to provide the best care for those patients either. I mean, we're all guilty of that. I think it's just not something that is talked about as much. Um, but that is definitely a population that you're going to see that is underreported as well. Yeah, I've, I, I've heard that, especially the, the T part of the LGBT community. Yes. I think there's a, a lot of stigma and, you know, unreported abuse, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and that's why we do, um, we have a booth at Pride Festival. Um, we go out for Pride and um, we get our information out at that festival as well. I've done that a couple years. Um, I think we're actually going to be doing it this year too. It stopped a little bit because of COVID, but we do have a booth um, where we provide information and try to get the information out there to the community. That's really awesome. And it brings up the question, how can safe nurses get their word out there, mm-hmm. especially to at-risk communities. Yeah. So we do a lot of stuff with the colleges in the area. Like I've done a fair at like MICA. We go around, we're invited to a lot of stuff. So we come and we talk about what we do. Um, I would love to do more with the fire department. Um, I'm happy to do education. I enjoy talking about it. Um, I really like working with EMS and law enforcement just because I am in the ER. So we see them all the time. So I do a lot of like word of mouth education um you know when people bring in strangulation patients i'm like okay i'm gonna like talk your ear off for like five minutes you're gonna have to listen to me um you know but for the most part people are pretty receptive um but we do get out in the community and do a lot of stuff like that 
Um, you know, we've done some walks and stuff with um, groups for like human trafficking and things like that. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that we do that I think people don't know about. Okay. Yeah, I, I didn't know everything that I involved until we talked initially. Yeah. You know, yeah. Why, why, did, why did I make the initial post? I think I made the post on Facebook because I wanted to talk to a safe nurse. Right. Just because I knew safe was a thing. Right. But then when we initially talked on the phone, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a... Uh, I think that, I mean, stuff like this is also helpful for EMS, right? Because, I mean, we're finding, I mean, there's a reason our podcast has become so successful so quickly because I think people are looking for content like this. Right. So I think this is going to be really helpful um, because also we're not only a Maryland podcast, right? I mean, the, like right. our number two city is like Seattle. Right. You know, so, uh, I mean, I, and I imagine everywhere regionally, I'm sure there's nuances, especially from state to state. Mm -hmm. um, but maybe this can be like, uh, you know, an opportunity for people to go ask those questions at their, Absolutely. At their agencies. Um, other states I know, safe nurses, um, they see um, GSWs, cuttings, things like that. Um, you know, we can certainly see that as a part of our interpersonal violence exams. We would just have to, like, live a chuck trauma to be able to, like, do that. I was going to say, you, you, you have know, to get your cause But a lot, of other, a lot of other states have um, forensic nurses in their trauma centers. So uh -huh. they do see those types of patients as well. Um, so I would encourage people, if you live in a state where, like, that's the case, or maybe ask if that's, you know, the case in your state, but that is what other states do. It's just it's just fascinating to me because, like, 90% of the people probably listening to this, I thought a safe nurse did an exam when someone was sexually assaulted, yeah. gave out mm -hmm. some medicine, and... Yeah. Called it a day. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know yeah. there was so much to it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I'm glad we did this. I, I, have, um, this is literally... I don't even know why I'm asking this question, but like, why has there ever been any attempts at doing like forward? Like, so say someone refuses, right? Has there ever been ever been any? I mean, I don't even know how that would work, but like any attempt to like put safe nursing resources, like for lack of a better term, operating a little bit forward, right? Have you ever heard of stuff like that? Because like, I imagine, in what sense? So like, say I have someone that I can't force them to go to the hospital, right? Right. But mm -hmm. I think that they could be useful. You know, mm -hmm. they, they could use your resources yes. specifically. So I call that um, planting the seed, which I think is a really cool thing. Um, and I actually kind of learned about that idea when I went to the human trafficking symposium that Hopkins hosted a couple months ago. And they actually had a um, survivor of human trafficking speak. And she talked about all the times she went to the hospital for like, stomach hurting abdominal pain things like that and like all the people that she ran into along the way and she talked about people who planted the seed for her to finally get to the point where she was ready to get out of the situation get help things like that um so you know you can always say look you don't want to go to the hospital right now that's fine i just it's important that you know the resources that are available for you and then i usually explain because there's people that i see and talk to that don't want anything from me like i go to see them and i'm like hey they called me because it sounds like there's something going on with you someone might be hurting you or doing something to you um, can I offer you this exam, these photographs, this report? No, I don't need that. I'm not interested in that. Okay. You can come back at any time. The forensic program here has a nurse on call 24 seven. So you can come back at any time, come to the ER, tell them that you want to see the safe nurse for a forensic exam and they will call us. And I've had people come back a week or two weeks later and get seen. Um, so you can always explain to people what their options are and what the resources are available to them. Um, but they do have to be ready to receive that information. And I see so many people get frustrated. 
she's going back to the person. She's going to go back to the person. She's going to, she probably will. She probably will get discharged from here. She's probably going to go back to the person that's physically abusing her because she's not going to leave that until she's ready to. And it's a cycle with so many factors um, that we do not understand and we're not going to understand. So what we need to do is we need to provide the care for the person, give them the information and the resources and let them make the decision when they're ready. But you can't get caught up in the frustration of I didn't fix the problem if that makes sense it's interesting because we've had the conversation before about just in general tempering your expectations and what we do but I think that's a great example of that did you have anything no I don't did you do you no I think we covered everything thank you so much to talk about absolutely thank you for having me you did an amazing job thanks was really exciting. We would tell you if you didn't. Okay. I believe you. <laughs> you want to finish this up? Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Alert Medic One podcast. Please check us out on social media, Facebook, Twitter, website coming soon. Most importantly, leave us a rating and review on the podcast app of your choice. That's the best way to get our numbers up there, to get other people to hear us. Tell a friend about us. That's the best way for somebody to find us. And the other thing, so we've had a lot of people send us feedback that, like, well, it's all been positive feedback. But we appreciate it. Keep sending it in because uh, it, it does affect how we do our episodes. Absolutely. We want to hear from you. If there's something you like, we'll do more. If there's something you don't like, we'll take that into consideration. <laughs> Have a good night, everybody. Peace out. You've been listening to the Alert Medic One podcast, the premier emergency medical services podcast with your hosts, Mustafa Sadiq and Ken Sanner.